Let's read Psalm chapter 30. It says this, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol and restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved by your favor, O Lord. You, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing and have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we just sung of an offering to give to you our whole lives. I look at uh, what's written and printed that I've written up here before you, and it feels like a very weak offering to present before you today. So Lord, we rely on your word, the strength your power has, the strength your spirit has to transform us, to change us. And we depend on you. God, we look over our lives at so many places that have been filled with mourning. And we plead, God, for the hope, for the peace, the joy uh, that only you can give. God, we trust in you today because you have made promise after promise in your word. And you have been faithful time and time again to keep your promises. It's on that alone, your grace, your, your faithfulness. It's on that alone that we stand today. And we proclaim your good news, even in this moment. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Back in 2013, my family had a great privilege to go and travel to Israel. And uh, it was an awesome experience in so many ways, except for one time. <laughs> there was one morning I wanted to tell you about. We had a free, a free time uh, to explore in Jerusalem a little bit. And we went and explored Hezekiah's Tunnel. And I recommend that if you're ever there. Uh, very cool experience. But we were doing this with, on our own without our tour guide. And somehow in the, um, you know, I don't know, different culture or whatever else, we just, we just got turned around on how once we do this trip through the tunnel, how you get back to where we needed to be. And we got to there and somebody, I think to my memory, they said, either you can take a cab, you know, around this way, or you can just take this path, you know. So we decided to walk, you know, it's a beautiful day, we'll go out for a walk. Well, we didn't understand that that also would include another tunnel and well, that's okay. We went through this one tunnel. And I don't even know if this was like a construction thing. I don't know what it was. But we start going through this tunnel, and it's this tunnel that starts out by, I don't know, my memory of this is probably very skewed. But it felt like it was a big tunnel. But then pretty soon it was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And it kept making turn after turn after turn. And we really had no concept of distance. Like we didn't know how far this was to go. And so the longer we went in it, we, none of us said anything. Like Looking back, everybody was getting just a little bit more panicky, a little more panicky. None of us had struggled with claustrophobia before that day. All of us struggled ever since. 
but it like the tunnel just got smaller and smaller and and there would be these little gaps like in the walls where you could see outside and we would notice that like some of us would take breaks and like kind of look through that wall you know and uh, somebody I think my mom was one that started playing like music on her phone we were all just kind of getting antsy and and you get to the some point on a trip like that where where you don't know like is it better to just turn around and go back or am I just like two turns from the end and so you pause, you think, you consider, like you know how far you've been, but you don't know how. And we just, eventually it all ended well, nobody died, like it was okay, it was just a tunnel, you know. But it, it, it freaked us out. And I think that, that moment of, I can't, I mean, physically there was light there, but metaphorically, you, you don't, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You, you don't know how far you have to go. And, and I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a metaphor here in this picture. Sometimes going through darkness or hardship or struggle, the hardest part is you don't know how long it's going to last. If you can just see the light at the end, or you don't know if it's ever going to pass, right? But if you could just see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's okay. It's right. It gives you a sense of peace, a sense of comfort. If you know the end is in sight, if you know that there's, there's a good thing coming, that this will pass when I get to that point, I know I'm heading in the right direction, and it, it, it will be over at some point, then you can make it. But it's the unknown. It's the, it's the, I don't know if this will ever end, that can so often overwhelm us and consume us. In suffering, not knowing when it's going to pass can be the hardest part. If you can have hope, if you can see light, then you can make it through. Many times suffering is bad, but suffering without hope is almost unbearable. Psalm 30 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of rejoicing. It's a song of, psalm of celebrating that God has brought the author of this psalm through a period of suffering. It's on the other end of it, looking back at the hardship and celebrating, thanking God for His deliverance through the hardship. A, a thanksgiving psalm is a psalm that points back to a time where they, they needed help and God answered. God came through. He delivered. This psalmist particularly it, it, by reading it, we get the sense he probably had a physical sickness that almost brought him to death. It talks about the grave, the pit, and so he thanks God for rescuing him, saving his life, that he didn't allow him to die because of the sickness. The hope he speaks of in that, that he can look back now and he can recognize the hope that God has given him. That's the hope that I think we can hold on to today because the hope he had is the same hope, the same testimony of all Christians, that we can cling to the same hope. With this hope, suffering becomes bearable. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's, there's a way out. There's a promise of something good yet to come. I, I want you to hear this psalmist's testimony. It starts and ends with praise and thanksgiving, but, but I want you to hear his testimony and imagine what his story would be like, understand what his testimony was, so that we as Christians better understand our testimony and the same promise, the same hope that we can cling to for the future. In verse 3, he's thanking God and he said, You restored me to life from among those going down to the pit. The pit being a reference to the grave. I, I was in the group of people that was on their way to the grave. And you rescued me. You pulled me out of that group. And he's thanking God for it. Verse 2, he says, You have healed me. So probably some kind of sickness. That's why he's praising God. But I want to point out that as he gives his testimony, in this case, his near-death experience was not just random. <laughs> none, of, none of our hardships are. 
But his, his experience was not just a part uh, of living in a broken world. This particular experience, this particular hardship, was a discipline from the Lord. That the Lord specifically sent it as a way to get his attention and call him out of sin. How did, how did I get that? Verse 5, he's praising God that it's only temporary, but he says for his, referencing God, he says his anger is but for a moment. The reason he was going through this sickness was because of the anger, the wrath, the, the discipline of God. Verse 6, why, why, why was he, what was the sin he committed? Verse 6, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Things were going well for him. He was prospering. He said, I got this and nobody can touch me. Nobody can touch me. Whatever else may, he may have uh, seen going on around him, he had enough power, enough resources. He thought that I'm okay. And that is a very dangerous place to be. On the other end of suffering, he's able to look back and say, it was actually by the Lord. Verse 7, he says, by the Lord, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. So it was God that had given him any good gift that he had, but he didn't know that in the moment. He didn't know that in the moment. It was not his own power. So here's what I want you to learn as we think about how, how can we hold on to hope? How can we cling to hope in, in our hardships and the struggles? Well, sometimes we got to recognize that we put ourselves in the hardship. And one of the ways we do it, like in Psalm 30, is that we rely on ourselves. And the, the psalmist, what he learns here is self-reliance is self-destructing. Self-reliance is self-destructing. It's easy when things are starting to go well to say, I'm in control. Now, King David's probably the one that wrote this psalm, and we can imagine that he had very good reason to be confident in himself, at least from a human perspective, right? He was king. Kings have everything under their control. Under, under King David's reign, Israel had one of the greatest times of peace they had ever had. The kingdom was at, was, was at rest at different times. And he said, I got this. He's got a newly built palace, one of the most beautiful in the, in the ancient world. He, he had everything under his control. And so you can imagine him walking through his palace saying, I got this. It's under control. I shall never be moved. You don't, th don't think that you have to be a king to face that kind of temptation. All of us, no matter how small our kingdoms may be, may face the temptation of saying, I got this under control. My, my reign, my control won't be touched. A little success at work, a pay raise, landing a big account, getting a promotion. We start, our pat start to pat ourselves on the back and say, look at me. A little progress at home, kids are doing well. Everybody's healthy, everybody's happy, everything's in order. We got some accomplishments, some success, and we start to think, I shall never be moved. Nothing can touch me now. That's a temptation that is fed by a, a pervasive thought throughout our culture. It's, it's a twist or a perversion of a good thing. I think ambition and hard work are gifts from the Lord that He gave to, to Adam in the garden. Adam had work to do in the garden before the fall that was good and holy. He, he had to name every animal. That was a lot of work. Like, he had to take care of a big garden. There was a lot of work there, but it was good and righteous and holy work. But after the fall, we twist that ambition and it becomes self-reliance. In our brokenness, we take what should be godly and we take it and make it ungodly. So we in our culture speak of things being like a, 
uh, being a, a self-made man or self-made woman. We, we take life by the horns. We say, I, I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. I got this all by myself. There's a uh, somewhat famous poem by a British poet from quite a long time ago, William Ernest Henley. The, the poem's called Invictus, which is a, apparently a Latin word meaning unconquered. And the last two word lines of that poem get quoted in various movies and TV stars. And uh, it's quoted by Winston Churchill and Nelson Mandela and various U.S. congressmen and presidents and the Oklahoma City bomber. That's not somebody you want to quote. But anyway, they all quote this poem. The last two lines are this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That sounds kind of heroic and ambitious and maybe even American, you know. I am the captain of my own soul. I set my own course. I do my own thing. Many people have been applauded for that kind of character and idea. And it goes deep in our culture. I'm in charge of my life. I'm setting a course. Nobody can stop me, right? But that last stanza, the full last four lines, shows you just how arrogant, how self-reliant, and therefore self-destructive this is. The last four lines of that poem, the two right before that, says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. Now, I had to think on that for a little while and use Google. What is he talking about? That's an allusion to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Narrow is the gate that leads to life. The, psalmist, the, the, the poet, uh, William Henley, was saying, I don't care how narrow you think that gate is to heaven. And then when he says, how charged the punishments the scroll, he's saying, there's a scroll up there that has punishments for me, so, so you think out there. I don't care how narrow it is. I don't care what punishments you think you have for me. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my own fate. He is, he is looking at God and saying, I got it. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And yet there is a, a deep Western American sense that that's, that's who we are. That's the kind of people we are. I'm going to be self-reliant. No, we are not the captain of our own soul. Just ask the billions of people who have come and died. They didn't get to decide how long they get to live. We, we, we are not the captain of our own soul. Proverbs 68, 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Praise God that He loves His children enough not to leave us in our self-reliance. Praise God that He wants to get our attention. For King David, it came by way of an illness. And God can use anything He wants to humble us and bring us back to Him. Hebrews 12, 6, quoting Proverbs, says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He received. God will not be mocked. And for His children, He loves us enough to draw us back to the path that we should be on. The psalm, in the case of the psalm writer, that sickness led almost to his death. Almost to his death. That was the suffering that he endured as a discipline from the Lord. It was a self-reliance that led to self-destruction. Now, I want to put an on-ramp here for another category of application because not all sicknesses are a direct result of some sin you've committed. I hope you know that. Some of them might be, but not all of them are. Not all sufferings you go through are because you did something wrong. So there is a category here, yes, of of kind of self-inflicted discipline from the Lord, but all hardships, whether it's something you did or not, are means of grace in the sense that God wants to teach you something through it. 
So just because you didn't cause your own hardship right now, don't check out and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. There's an on-ramp here to say, okay, that's the specific kind of suffering this, this writer went through because of his own arrogance. But the lessons he learned in suffering are for all of us. All of us. There are other times that sickness, I mean, uh, suffering may look different. But the lesson here is valuable. And here's the first one. In that, where, did, where did he go when he struggled? Where did he turn for help? Verse 2, he says, Oh Lord my God, I cried to you for help. That's a lesson by itself, is it not? When we struggle, where do we go? Who do we look to? What do we turn to? If we are self-sufficient, if we think we got this, then we're not going to ask for help. And if we don't know how good and how great God is, we won't ask God for help. Certainly the Lord can send family and friend and medical professionals and counselors and all kinds of visible and tangible help. But it's just that it is help given from the Lord. So we come to the Lord asking for the Lord's help. Ask Him. Pray to Him. Ask, seek His help when we need help. The biggest focus of this psalm is what God did in response to that help. God's rescue. We started with how He got into the problem, His own self-reliance, and He cried out for help. But I want you to see what God does when He cries out for help. In this case, the writer was near death, so He says, You have drawn me up. In verse 2, You brought my soul from Sheol, restored my life from those who go down to the pit. He has been saved. He's been physically brought from almost death to life. God intervened in a near-death experience, and we probably, in, across this room, know many stories like that. People diagnosed with one sickness or cancer or disease or something or the other, and it looked like things were not going to end well very soon. And yet God intervened, God rescued, brought, God brought them out. Car wrecks that many of us have either personally experienced or people around us where it just looked like there's just no way they should have survived, and yet God rescued them from the pit. God brought them physically from almost death to life. That's the testimony, literally, of so many people, maybe just in this room, just like this probably King David experienced. But I want you to know that there's a, a hint of something more than just the physical resurrection, physical salvation from a near-death experience. After all, this was 3,000 years ago David wrote this. So he was saved from that death, but he did eventually die. So what is he talking about here? Well, he gives a little hint in the end of verse 12. He says, Oh Lord, my God, I'll give thanks to you forever. How are you going to give thanks to somebody forever? If you only, like Psalm 90 talked about last week, you've only lived seven, eight decades. How can you promise that I'm going to give thanks to you forever? Apparently, David was hoping for something more than just this lifetime. You see, the, the pattern of Psalm 30, of, of God rescuing David from a physical illness to new life, is not just his testimony. It's the testimony of every Christian who believes in Christ. So the, the, the main goal, the main emphasis of Psalm 30 is also your testimony today, and that's this. Thank the Lord for His resurrecting work. Thank the Lord for His resurrecting work work. Every Christian, whether you've been through some physical illness or life-threatening disease or struggle or hardship, everybody who believes in Jesus has been brought from near death to life. And even more than that, we have been brought from spiritual death to life. Just as Psalm 30 says, you have drawn me up. 
You, you have healed me. You've brought my soul from going down to the pit. That sounds awfully a lot like the New Testament when Ephesians 2 talks about we were dead in our trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath, destined for the grave, right? People were rejoicing over, over us for destruction. And just as the psalm praises us for drawing them up, Ephesians 2 says, even we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. Psalm 30's testimony is your testimony if you have believed in Christ Jesus for your salvation. Whether you know it or not, you and I were destined for the pit. We were destined for the grave. We were destined and sentenced to an eternity apart from God. And yet by grace, by the incredible act and gift of God, He sent His Son to die in our place so that we could be resurrected. We could be brought to a newness of life. And as a gift from the Lord by His power alone. That is how God worked in our salvation, and it is how God works in your life ongoing day by day. You have turned, he says in verse 30, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. You, you go from, from weeping to celebrating, rejoicing. How, how does that happen? How can God do that? Only by His grace. God takes evil and turns it around. What looks like could be for bad works out for good. I want you to see in Psalm 30 that there is a testimony here and there is a pattern of the gospel that happens over and over again in the Christian's life and is, and is the unique place of us finding hope. Apart from this, apart from God's pattern here, there, there would be no hope this side of Christ coming back. We would just be struggling forever. But He has made Away. Romans 8, 28, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's exactly what happened in Psalm 30. David was nearly dead, and yet God pulled him out of the grave, almost dead, pulls him out, and now he is celebrating, now he's rejoicing in God. He is closer with God because of the sickness he went through. God used what looked like was evil and made it in a, into a good for him. How, how could anybody look at a near-death experience and say that was good? Only because of what God had done in them. And I, I have sat in my office and in coffee shops and restaurants and in your homes and places all around and heard testimonies from people like you with stories like King David. The thing I, I the, the, it blows me away when I hear this. When people say, here's the incredibly hard thing that I went through and I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't give it away. Multiple of you have said those exact words to me, and I just am floored every time. David would say that about whatever this sickness was. He would say, I wouldn't trade it. I almost died, and you can't take that from me. You cannot take it from me because of how much I know God. That is resurrecting power. That is taking something that was evil. We're not calling the evil thing good. Sickness, cancer, car wrecks, whatever it may be, that is evil. Dead in your sin is evil. But God uses the evil. He is so powerful. His sovereignty is so great that even the evil things of the world serve His purposes. That's the greatness of our God. That's resurrecting power. That takes death and makes it a servant of life. The only way for you and me to go be with God forever is through death. Even death is a servant of the Lord. That's incredible. And that's what Psalm 30 was celebrating. You and I get to know the God who has resurrecting power. 
and he brings us from death to life. Do you see how God works things that were originally intended for evil to be for your good? Testimony after testimony, you probably know far more than, than I do, but of miraculous times where God has used the most awful of situations and he used it for good. Whether or not it's your testimony up to this point, I, I want to point you to the promise of Psalm 30 that is available for all of us who believe. If you believe, this becomes your testimony. There, there are all kinds of vivid ways that Psalm 30 describes this. There's all these back and forth, light and dark, up and down, these kind of things. But my favorite of them all comes in the second half of verse 30. I mean, verse 5 of Psalm 30. He says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you believe that? Is that a promise you cling to? Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The psalmist is saying there is real grief in this life. It's weeping. It really is dark. It really is nighttime. He is not diminishing the sorrow. He says it does last. And sometimes that night lasts a long time. It's a lot longer than the 12 hours the sun has set. The weeping, the, the nighttime, it may go on for a while. It may seem to tarry. The, the grief, the season of sorrow may feel very deep. But the promise of joy is as sure as tomorrow's sunrise. That's how confident he is that God brings resurrection, that God brings life to his children. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There will never be a day, this side of Christ returning, that the sun doesn't come up. As long as the earth has existed, the only way it exists is that we keep spinning, so therefore the sun keeps coming up, right? And same way, there will never be a day that Christians can't have hope. As long as we are alive and far beyond it, there is hope because of the Son, Jesus Christ. Tim Keller wrote, While God can be angry with His people, anger is never His final word. Joy is always on the way. I love that. Joy is always on the way. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You may not know how long the tunnel is, but there is a light. You may not be able to see it, but with eyes of faith, you can. With eyes of faith, you can. Why, why can we hold on to that? You may say, that sounds well and good. But what, what assurance do we have of that? What assurance do we have? I mean, yeah, okay, David, he, he has a pretty unique relationship with God. He, he can say weeping tarries for the night and joy comes in the morning. But what about me? How, how can I, what, what assurance do I have to cling to that kind of promise? After all, as my pastor growing up used to say, the death rate is still 100%. What, what do you do? How do you cling to joy coming in the morning? When this psalm was written, as he's, he had some faint idea because he was proclaiming he's going to praise God forever. But this side of the New Testament, it gets a lot clearer for us about why we can hold on to that promise. Jesus said something the night before he was crucified that so sounded a lot like Psalm 30. This is John 16, verse 20. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, He's speaking to his disciples. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You hear that? That sure sounds a lot like weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes with the morning. 
Psalm 30 says, we, Psalm 30 says it that way. Jesus says in verse, keeps going in verse 21, he gives an illustration of his own death and resurrection. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she is no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from me. He says the weeping you're experiencing now, the sorrows you're going through is because they're, they're about to see their, their leader, their rabbi, their, their best friend and who they thought was the Savior and is the Savior. They're about to see him crucified. It, it doesn't get much lower than that. We thought this guy was the Savior of the world and we see him nailed to a cross. That was a sorrowful day for them, was it not? He says, it's going to be bad. There is real weeping. There is real darkness. There is real sorrow. But it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And neither is yours. Your sorrow isn't the end. It isn't the final word. Anger may be for a while, but joy is on the way. Weeping may tarry from the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus coming, dying, and then resurrecting is the assurance you and I have for hope. David had a faint idea of it some 3,000 years ago, but where we stand today, we stand on this side of an empty tomb. And if death has literally been defeated, there is no greater enemy. There is nothing that can keep you from eternal joy. Christ has conquered the grave. And for all who believe in Him, He said, you get to be with me forever. Weeping is real. It really does tarry for a long time for a lot of people. But there is nothing that can keep you from eternal joy because there's an empty tomb. I told you I went to Israel. We don't know exactly where that tomb is, but Jesus' body wasn't anywhere to be found. I can tell you that. It's still empty. It's still empty. He paid for your sins once and for all, and He set up a way. He made a way for you and me to now be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Your resurrection is as guaranteed as Christ's was. You can have joy. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Perhaps you've heard on, on YouTube, that's a pretty famous poem turned into a sermon by a man named S.M. Lockridge. That's where I got the title of my message today. His his poem says this, It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are a-sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday, hope has lost, death has won, sin has conquered, and Satan's just a-laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. It's Friday, it is only Friday, and Sunday's coming. Do you believe in that? Do you believe the sorrow you're in is a Friday? And that on Sunday, you can even look back and call it a good Friday. There is weeping that lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Because of what Christ has accomplished for us, we can hold on to hope and say the best is yet to come. 
There may be joy now. There may be sorrow now. But the best is yet to come. And when it does, we praise Him for it. This psalm is filled with thanksgiving. One of the clearest ways you know that you have really experienced salvation is that you turn and thank the one who saved you. If you think that you saved yourself, if you think that you have your own self-reliance, then you got nobody to thank. You're not going to be filled with gratitude. But David can look back and say, I was almost dead. I certainly couldn't have saved myself. It was only the Lord. And so he turns and he praises God over and over. Verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. One commentator said something like, if God lifts up your life, then we sure ought to lift up his name. <laughs> one of the surest ways you know you've been saved is you thank the one who saved you. Verse 4, sing praises. He can't, he can't keep it to himself. He says, hey, hey, this is what God did for me and for all of us. Join with me, congregation. He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. All the ones that are his children, praise him, thank him. You've all been through a Friday and Sunday's come and praise him. We've got to thank him for this. Verse 12, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. He said, we're not going to be quiet. We're not going to be quiet. We're going to praise loudly. We're going to worship God with all we have. Thanking God for his salvation. For all who have been rescued, the way you know somebody's been rescued is they turn around and thank the one who rescued them. We started with showing how the psalm was like a, uh, the, 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 the psalm writer was living in sin, living in self-reliance and in repentance, uh, because of God's discipline led to repentance, God's salvation came and he thanked God for it. But there's one little phrase I want to end, leave you with to end on this morning. And a song, uh, this one phrase caught my attention that I just thought was so glorious. In verse 7, he was telling about how he went from self-assurance to recognizing his sin. So verse 6, he had said, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Verse 7 tells what he, what has been true all along that he had missed. He says, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. He's like, I, I used to be, I had assurance in myself. I said, I'm not going to be moved. But all along it was God. It was God who was really keeping my mountain strong. So then what was the difference? What was the change? He could have described that change in any number of ways, right? He could have said, uh, well, I got sick. He could have said, uh, I felt like the world was falling apart or, or my mountain was crumbling or I lost my prosperity. That could have been the next thing he said, right? Because that is what happened. He got sick. How'd you go from being self-reliant to recognizing it's the Lord who is really holding me up all the way. How did he go? Verse 7 says, You hid your face. That was the difference. He said, I lost my connection with you. He didn't say, I, I lost all my money. The stock market crashed. I lost my health. He did lose his health. He could have said that. But he said, I lost my connection with you. The thing that he recognized he needed more than anything else in the world was God. That's what he needed. The person who has been brought out of self-reliance, dependent on God, saved by God, is now thanking God. They live differently. You know how they live? They live reliant on the face of God. Reliant on the face of God. No longer self-reliant, reliant on a relationship with Him. The face of God is a way of talk, the way the Bible talks about knowing God intimately and personally. Genesis 32 has an episode. It is a strange, can't quite picture exactly what it's like, 
But Jacob was on the run and he met God in the, in the night and he wrestled with him till dawn. I don't know what that looked like, but it was this, it was this just wrestling, right? And he, when he says, it says the next morning, he said, uh, he said, I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. He said, I had this encounter with God. I was so close with God. I saw him face to face. Revelation 22, when John has a vision of the city of God and the tree of life, he says in 22, Revelation 22, 4, we will see his face. Psalm 30, David says, the thing I, I can't live without, the thing that, that makes all of life feel like despair is if the face of God is hidden from me. I've I got to see his face. i got to know him. i got to be with him. I'm reliant on one thing and one thing alone. God, not God's gifts, not God's presence, not the prosperity I experience, not the mountain I'm on, not the job I've got, not the family I've got. None of those things are the thing I'm relying on. The thing I'm relying on is I need the face of God. That's the testimony of somebody who was in a pit, who was nearly dead, spiritually dead, has been brought out to life, and is now living with God. He recognizes this and this alone is what I need. I need God. I don't know what Friday you're in. I don't know what weeping you may be in. I don't know what nighttime you may be in. But joy is coming because the face of God is available to you by faith, by grace, a gift from the Lord. He can be with you in the night. So there's a promise, a guarantee of a light at the end of the tunnel. The joy is on the way. It's always on the way. And when you know that, you can thank God for His resurrecting work. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Christ. Thank You for an empty tomb. Thank You for defeating sin and death forever. Based on that, we have a 100% assurance of a joy that's on the way. God, thank you that we get to experience that in part even now as we get to walk with you in the abundance of life, in the fullness of life, in the joy of life, in the joy of knowing you. God, may we trust you day by day. May we walk with you day by day. May we seek your face day by day so that no matter the night or day, whatever we may be in, we can find joy in you. Lord, I pray for that kind of hope for any that may be suffering today. For those of us who know maybe suffering is on the horizon in some form or, fa- form or another, God, we pray for, the, for an edified faith even today so that we may face the nights with an unquenchable joy, an unquenchable um, satisfaction in you. God, thank you for sending Jesus so that we can have that kind of assurance even now. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.